Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. In January 2022, the legendary singer-songwriter Janice Ian released what she says will be her last solo studio album, the light at the end of the line. I had a chance to speak with Janice Ian about a career and her life on September 10th, 2008 in the KPFA studios while she was on tour for her memoir, Society's Child. My guest is Janice Ian, whose autobiography is Society's Child. Janice Ian was a star at the age of 15 with the song Society's Child, sang several other songs at 17, was a huge hit, many hits over the years, has written science fiction short stories, got into a controversy, which I want to talk about, about free downloads on the (laughs) internet, columnist for The Advocate at one point, writer, singer, songwriter. This autobiography, Society's Child, what prompted you to write it now? I hit my 50s with a thud and realized that there really wasn't any kind of a roadmap for getting older in my business graciously, particularly if you were female, particularly if you were in pop music as well as folk music. Folk music has its Pete Seegers and its Ronnie Gilberts, but pop music really doesn't have anything like it. So I started looking for ways also to pass on just some of the knowledge that had been passed on to me. I was mentored by people like Odetta and Dave Van Ronk and Joplin and Hendrix. It was a really different time now where those people don't, you don't really meet people as you come and go around. So it was a combination of those, and plus it looked like a really good way to stay home for a year. You mean it just came out of the blue that you were going to write it? You suddenly woke up? Because I know that... No, there was some serious planning. I mean, from the time I was about 50, 51, I started looking for an agent and talking to author friends and then talked with nine different agents and was in the very fortunate position of having nine agents interested. Then when I hired an agent... Then came the process of writing something and shopping it, and then came the process of acceptance and contract. So it was three or four years in the making. But then, yeah, uh, one day then I sat down and started writing. When you were working on it, how did you feel about using real names versus pseudonyms? Because you deal with a lot of people very honestly and openly, and they don't all come across well. A lot of the people in the book whose real names are used read the book before read the first draft even before I turned it into the publisher just to see if there was anything that they wanted changed. Peter Cunningham read it, uh, Carol Hunter, a bunch of people. A couple of people, like my first girlfriend, asked to be pseudonyms, and that was fine with me. It really wasn't relevant. The therapist that I slept with, (laughs) the lawyer had me change her name not because I said I slept with her, which was public record, but because I said that she was a lousy lay, and he said I could be sued on that basis, and I thought, (laughs) really, okay, all right, fine, yeah. But in in general, you know, you start looking at things like, at the last minute, I found out that somebody I had thought that was out was not, in fact, out, and I called her and said, 
I can't believe that you're not out. I mean, you've been living this life for 20-odd years. And she said, oh, no, please, my job, blah, 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 blah. And I said, fine, I'll change your name. I don't care. It wasn't that relevant most of the time. It didn't really matter. But in, in some cases, like your songwriting partner in Nashville, for Kai. instance. Well, Kai and I had lunch before I even started the book. And I said, here's what I'm doing. And if I don't talk about us, then it's not going to make much sense. And she was fine. And she's okay with it now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, she actually said that I was, she thought I was much kinder than I needed to be, which I thought was really sweet. It's interesting in reading this book, trying to get some overall sense. I mean, it's almost easier for a reader to get a sense of your life in a way than you. Oh, well, yeah. Otherwise, yeah. I, wouldn't made, I wouldn't have made so many mistakes. I mean, <laughs> there's moments there when I read it and I go, oh, God, couldn't you see that coming? What was the matter with you? Yeah, trust issues. Yeah. And reason not to trust people. Absolutely. Before I get there... You changed your name professionally from Janice Fink to Janice Ian, uh, your brother's middle name. You talk about it briefly, but it's something that happened from the very first time you performed? Pretty much, or the second or third. I didn't want my family involved. That was the main reason. And the other reason was that I didn't feel any attachment to the name. I, we came over on Ellis Island and they changed the name. So as I said to my mother, it's not like we came over on the Mayflower with the name Adams or something. It's not an illustrious, it's not even our family name. So what does it matter? I picked my own name. And you just out of the blue picked your brother's middle name? Well, it was a good choice. It was a good choice. Eight letters for the whole thing. It was in the I's, it comes early in the alphabet. Not quite it by Ezra Dillon, but just after. And how do you feel about it now? I don't even think about it. Really? You know, it's been my name since I was 13 or so. Becoming famous, you know, we hear a lot about it, and a lot of people want to become famous. And it always struck me that it's better to be rich and not famous than it, famous and not rich. Well, I think it's very peculiar right now in America that wanting to become famous is so acceptable. Because when I was growing up, it was considered very odd. If you were a musician, you wanted your music heard. And to want to be a Beatle, to want to just be famous for being famous was just weird. And nowadays, it's, of course, everybody wants to be famous for at least 10 minutes. And at the time, did you want to be famous or did you just want to sing in public? Or oh, what? both. Both. I think it took until Society's Child was a hit and I realized one day that people were actually listening. It was a revelation to me how seriously they took it. And I realized that it was much, much better to be a good writer than it was to be a famous person. Did you ever kind of get caught up in my whatever doesn't stink because I'm famous? Did that? It doesn't seem no, as if you did no. at all. I mean, that's so not in the folk ethic. That's so not okay in the world I come from. Folk singers and, and songwriters, I think, tend, tend to be very aware and very humble about their talent because we know that it's, <laughs> it's something we're born with. It's not that I don't work at it, but I was born with the talent to play and to sing and to write. And so how can you think that you're better than anybody else just because you were born with that? That's like thinking you're better than somebody else because you're born blonde. Do you ever stumble across the people who don't get that? Yeah. Yeah, mostly they're singers who are not notorious for their brains or they're actors who are ditto. Most writers tend to be a little more intelligent. I mean, I, I don't say that to be condescending. It's just the fact of the matter is that singers and actors speak what we write. Trying to see and Later in your life, you did become a writer uh, of stories. Prose writer. A prose writer, yeah. A legitimate had, writer. <laughs> had there been any, I mean, this this book, for instance, is, you know, I've read some biographies by um, performers, and this is a biography by a professional writer. Thanks. Good. 
Yeah, I think that uh, I did five years at The Advocate with Judy Weider as my editor. That really taught me a lot. And I did eight years at Performing Songwriter, where I was left to my own devices. And that really was a good illustration in how being left to your own devices means you really have to edit yourself or look incredibly stupid. And I think also, I just, I love reading. I love reading. And you can only read so much before it starts creeping in. So I wanted a breezy book. I wanted a very readable book, a very conversational book. And that was what I went after. I hate most performers' autobiographies. They're so, oh, I don't know, boring and self-serving. So as you were writing it, you knew that the part that people would be going for would be... The dirt. Hell yeah. And you know what? That is what interests people. I mean, that's what interests me when I read about somebody's life. I, I don't want to read about how they wrote a song. There's one example of that in the book because I thought that was relevant. But I'm much more interested in who they slept with and when they slept with them and why and why did they stop and was it any good? You know, it's trash. Well, you, you briefly mentioned Janis Joplin. How well did you know her? I mean, you, you kind of put her in a couple of paragraphs, but it sounded like you knew her a lot, quite a bit better. Well enough that we went shopping together, well enough that we hung out. In fact, I met her here in Berkeley. Ralph Novak introduced us, the critic, just before the Berkeley Folk Festival, or the Berkeley Festival, the Berkeley Folk Festival, which was the first time I had played at a big outdoor amphitheater, and Janice hadn't played at many by then either. And I remember we were sitting in two chairs in one of the college uh, downstairs areas, Ralph came in and he brought he brought us both in and he said, "Look, you spell your name the same," and we kind of looked at each other with this. And your point is, but we became friends. She was very good to me. At that point, you were more famous than she was. Oh, I don't know. Not on the West Coast, I don't think. I don't know. Joplin to me, I really looked up to her because she. Well, there's not many people who sing with their authentic voice. You know, there's a Willie Nelson, Joplin, in my era anyway. Uh, it's rare. It's rare. Aretha. Nobody can do Aretha. Nobody can do Joplin. It's pretty amazing. What I loved when I saw Festival Express was that it was the first time I'd seen her captured singing, performing the way I remember seeing her. I haven't seen that. The very last song is Joplin performing. And I followed her around, Mm. you know, and nothing I'd ever seen captured why she was so special because you really had to see that. Yeah, incandescent. She glowed. Bette Midler's like that. There's a handful of performers I've seen like that. Why didn't you ever get into acting? I mean, you took acting classes, and a lot of great singers and songwriters became actors. I don't think I would have been very good. Maybe in movies, maybe in TV where they could cut around me, but on the stage, I don't know. You know, maybe maybe partly because it's a Janice Ian thing, partly just because I'm always too busy doing other stuff. I don't know now that I would welcome the chance. I'm, I'm not sure. Janice Ian, you got your start... With Society's Child, you said in the book that you just happened to see an interracial couple, mm. and it got your mind going on that. What do you think your background as kind of a red diaper baby <laughs> had to do with your ability to see things that sometimes other people didn't see? I think that that's not as relevant as just being born a writer. Stella Adler, my acting teacher, used to say that writers are born knowing, and I think there's a great deal of truth to that. Your talent, as she said, lies in your choices. I chose to write on some level about that black and white couple instead of the smell of the diesel. So I'd say it's much less to do with the red diaper thing and and more to do with just, again, being born with the talent. Well, well then let's go back to that because you did the FBI following your family. We and did. You went, we did. To, uh, you went to a... Went to the uh, commie camps. A yeah. commie, one of the commie camps. I did too. I went to one called Camp Hurley. Oh, sure. 
I, I remember, um, you know, being dangled on uh, Pete Seeger's knee. Yeah, that's one of my <laughs> early memories, too, except that it was in Lakewood at the farm. My dad certainly wasn't a communist. He was very far from it. Uh, my mom, I think, leaned a lot more left, but she would have bristled at the thought of being called a communist because she was some more refined Leninist, Trotskyite, or Marxist. Len- I can't. I never quite got it straight. My uncle doesn't even remember. Um, but she was very clear in her beliefs and that they didn't change. And I, I would laugh at her and say, well, that's great. They haven't changed in 40 years. Good for you. Wow. How did they feel? It sounds like that they were protective of you. They were protective and they were supportive. And I, none of us knew what hit us. You know, when Society's Child became a hit, I don't think even now that anyone is ever prepared to have a hit record. You can certainly be more prepared if you're older, but you're still not prepared. And to have a hit record that inspired the the violence um, and the violent reactions and the kind of conflagration that Society's Child inspired, there's no way to prepare for that. There's no way. Well, you talk in your book, you, you at the opening, you give an example of one of the uh, more difficult concerts. Were they all like that on those tours? No, no. I mean, that was a particular concert where 15 or 20 people actually bought tickets so they could boo me off the stage and call nigger lover. And, and um, if you can use that, that's FCC rules. It's in context. Isn't that weird that we're so politically correct that you can't say the word nigger lover? And say it in the sense of the pejorative and what ignorant people use. I say it in concert, and I had, uh, it's very strange to me, but twice I've had black people come up, people of color, whatever you want to call it, um, and thank me for saying the word. And the second person, I said, I don't understand why you're thanking me. And she said, because we don't say it anymore. We say the N-word, and we pretty it up, and it's an ugly word, and it needs to be said in all of its ugliness, which I thought I would never have thought of that. Sometimes, you know, sometimes you need to rip the veil off. Well, you've been ripping the veil off for for a long time. There's this dichotomy between Janice and off stage being afraid to rip the veil off, and then you go on stage and it comes off. That's the difference between the artist and the person, isn't it? I mean, the artist is a lot braver than the person. The person takes a lot longer to get things, I think, than the artist. Again, the talent knows better than you do. Do you feel safer then on stage sometimes than you do off? Not anymore. Maybe at some point in my life. I feel pretty safe in the world, period, nowadays. Although I find that really a narcissistic thing to say. (laughs) But I think, you know, I grew up with a hit record that that was really unsafe in a family that was made to feel unsafe in a society in general that felt unsafe and certainly a marginalized part of that society. Um, Certainly being molested as a kid doesn't make you feel safe. All of those things conspire to, to make safety an issue. But then I think you also grow up at one point and you say, okay, then either I'm going to work at feeling safe in the world or I'm going to run around uh, trying to look around corners all my life and wasting all my energy on that. And that's a lot of wasted energy. You wrote, it was very good to start young and to be successful at a very early age because you could kind of get a grasp on it later on. Get the mistakes out of the way. Yeah, but on the other hand, your childhood kind of vanished or would it have vanished anyway, you think? When people say, don't you miss having had a childhood, that's a weird thing to me because I had a childhood. I had an adolescence. It just wasn't everybody else's adolescence. But if I think about it from another point of view, this is a scant 200 years ago. At that age, I'd have been married and raising kids. So it's really a societal thing that's put on us of, you, you know, you're supposed to be this child until you're 18. Then magically, you're supposed to be in college. And then magically, you're supposed to be an adult. I guess part of me is just naive enough to not understand why that's weird to anyone. 
To me, the idea of being going through what you went through at 15, you know, would have been great. I mean, it's got yeah, a it's sound also, side It's not still. like I was in Darfur. You know, it's not <laughs> like I was being forced to carry a Kalashnikov. I mean, if you look at children in the world around, uh, we live in a bubble here. You know, the United States just gets to live in this big, giant bubble most of the time. Janiceean, after the hit of society's child, you talk a little about the pressure. And this, this seems to be something that continued through your life. You'd get one hit, <laughs> then things would fade away, and suddenly the record company and everybody would be putting so much pressure on you to do it again and to do it again really quickly. And it never dawned on me back in the 60s, may, it's probably may even still be true today, that a lot of artists, for their first album, first records are just brilliant and then the second one there's a fall off because well, they just haven't had time to regroup yeah they say you've got 10 years to prepare for your first record and 10 days for the second and that's that's the problem that's where management comes in that's where a good manager comes in or a streak of stubbornness um, I didn't have enough stubbornness when I was younger I would have done what say Springsteen did and just say you know what I'm not ready it's gonna be two years it's gonna be two years you risk your career that way but you risk your career the other way too when people ask me now for advice, that I always say, go with the X-Files theme. Trust no one. Trust your instincts because if your instincts are telling you it's not time, then it, it's not time. And it, if you record what you love and it's a flop, at least you'll still love it. But if you record something that you don't love and it's a flop, then you'll be stuck with it. How much of what you wrote in those early days then do you not love? I don't know that I love most of what I've written. I don't know that I would put it that way. I think there are songs that are really important to me for personal reasons or for professional reasons. Obviously, Society's Child or Nat 17, A Love is Blind, that gave me a career in Japan. There are songs that feel good on my throat, like Jesse or Watercolors. There are songs that are fun to play, like This Train Still Runs. But I would never look at them like, I guess I love other people's work. I don't love my work. You know, my work is just my work. It's what I do. A friend of mine uh, said to me to tell you that... Uh First time he heard it at 17, it made him cry. Aw. See, that's, that's cool. I mean, I love the song for what it has become to people, for what it does for people. But I love, first we'll take Manhattan a whole lot more than I love at 17. <laughs> that's something that you strive for as an artist, I think. You strive to hit that, that universal, that, that one piece in a lifetime that will cut through age and gender and sexuality and culture and everything that we lay between us to make sure that we don't get too close to each other, you you hope to write that one piece once that will do that. And so with that 17, having been able to do that once, that's pretty extraordinary to me. Well, you've done it a few times, I think. Oh, I don't know. But at 17, definitely did it. It's great. It's a cool thing to, to have been part of. You were on the very, very first Saturday Night Live. It was. What was that like? Was just people running around crazy? It was. It was very much that. People running around crazy. People nervous. People worrying. Live TV hadn't been done since the Sullivan Show. Uh, we had a lot of the Sullivan Show people there. Uh, nobody knew whether the humor would work. We forget now how, how cutting edge it was and how bold it was. But I got to watch that eight weeks ago or ten weeks ago. My partner, Pat, taped it for me. And I had never seen it. I remember sitting, I was sitting there with Pat going, God, this show was great. This was so funny. Do you have any recollection about Radner or Belushi or anybody like they that? They were really that? the actors and, and then the singers were kind of separate. So you didn't really see them? I saw them, but everybody was really 
working 24-7 and overtime and over speed to really just memorize their lines, make the last-minute changes, have it together for the camera. I remember them talking about that they couldn't get any commercial sponsors because everybody was too nervous, so they were having to come up with commercials. And, of course, the commercials then became an integral part of the show. And I remember going behind that papier-mâché mountain and seeing Jim Henson with the Muppets (laughs) and thinking, oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? (laughs) It's a cool thing to be part of. What about being on The Tonight Show? What was that like with Carson? That was amazing because you you don't realize the power until the first time you've done it. Um, And I didn't understand with Society's Child that I was just supposed to sing the song and leave. So when Carson motioned me over to talk, that was a huge deal. And my record company and publicists were sitting in the back going, yes, thank you, God, yes, thank you. And I was sitting here going, wow, Johnny Carson, how cool is this? I have a great picture at home of me just talking to him, and he's very animated talking to me, and I'm I'm kind of shyly looking down at my dress, and I can't remember what I was thinking. But, but the next day, boy, I was famous all over the country. So it's amazing the power that The Tonight Show has. How did you, how did you find out that it was, you know, that it just changed everything the next day? Oh, I walked day. down the street. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, or you walk into the hotel dining room and everybody stops eating. Yeah, it's it's pretty radical. It's a pretty radical change. People start bumping you up on the airline to first class because you create a consternation in coach. It's pretty radical. How long did that last? Probably about a year, maybe a year and a half. Because after Carson, I did, boy, I did all of them that year, whatever I could get. So I did all the talk shows. Did you get comfortable doing them? I guess you must have. Yeah, I I don't know that you ever get comfortable doing something as... As high intensity as Carson was then, it's less intense now. But the Carson show was just really intense. Freddie DeCordova was great to me. I mean, you know, I was a kid. I was 16. If you watch people on those shows, they're selling themselves, and they're selling themselves as part of the product. And I think you get comfortable with knowing that you're selling soap at the end of the day. And the only question is, your soap's pretty much the same as everybody else's. So what have you got to offer that's going to get people to buy your soap? If you have any sense, you get comfortable with that. But in terms of being witty and fast and on command, oof, that's a hard one. How does that compare, say, for doing doing interviews like this? Completely different? Oh, this is just talking to someone. This is like being a human being. It's real different. It's The profile is different, and the anxieties are different, and the expectation is different. You know, you can rise and fall on Carson. I mean, Richie Havens did Carson and sold 50,000 units the next day. That's amazing. What about your sales? They must have just like skyrocketed. It was just stupid how quickly it started selling. Yeah. But you know, when you're having a hit record, you're so in the middle of everything that you're just trying to get through day to day. You're you're not even looking at what's going to happen next week, let alone next year. You're just trying to keep up with yourself and with everybody's demands. Let's skip ahead a little. You had ups and downs and ups and downs through the 60s and 70s. The soap opera life. I know. It was appalling when I started writing about it, and I thought, I so did not intend to have this amount of drama in my life. I just really wasn't looking for that. It must have been odd at some points when you were kind of like scrounging for money, and everybody would go, oh, Janice, and she can't be scrounging for money. Yeah. Goes to show. Can't judge a book, you know? <laughs> One of the highlights of the book for me was... Uh, your relationship with Stellar Adler, Ah, uh, extraordinary woman. In those classes, because you were in her acting classes, who else was in there who we'd know the names of now? Do you remember? I was impressed that Bette Midler would come whenever she was in town, Tova Felcher. Um, A lot of the great actors would just stop by for a day or two, Carl Malden, just, just to kind of keep their edge. Do you think that writers, singers, songwriters, people in other fields should take acting classes? 
you know, I didn't take the acting classes for acting so much as for the script interpretation and the scene interpretation. I think that any artist should know as much about as many forms as they can possibly know. Because it's too easy, for instance, especially if you're a singer-songwriter, to um, to only know your own form and you end up cannibalizing yourself and your life for your work. And Stella, as Stella used to say, you know, what is this incredible I you all have? Really, the older you get, the, the more you realize how uninteresting your own life is and how much more interesting the larger-than-life figures you've known are, like a Stella, and how much more interesting the artists that you've known are than your day-to-day life. Really, the hard thing about an autobiography is you look back over your body of work, or I did anyway, and I looked back over my day-to-day life, and I realized in many respects <laughs> how little the two had to do with one another, really. You know, Stella certainly informed my work more than, uh, more than any angst I had with my ex-husband um, or any angst I had with my parents or with myself, for that matter. Well, I would think that even an acting class would try to kind of bring out parts of you that otherwise you might not be able to get to or at least a different eye because you are looking at people differently. Yeah, I think it depends on your experience up until then. I know a lot of the people in Stella's classes, particularly women, had problems ramping up, getting loud. And so things like being forced to debate one another and keep raising your vocal level were really freeing for them. For me, that wasn't so much because I had already learned that stuff as a performer. For me, it was much more about cat on a hot tin roof. Well, okay, what does that mean? Why is it called that? And what does cat become that they would name the play after her? What is Tennessee Williams thinking? Can you point to any particular song of yours or performance of yours that was really informed by this learning process, you think? Everything I've written since, every time I hit the stage, Stella's with me and everything she taught me. It's different from method, well, from the Stanislavski method. You know, I think the Stanislavski school concentrates a lot more on yourself and your ego and using your own experience and bringing that to the table, whereas Stella and Stanislavski, as opposed to Strasbourg, I should say, Stella and Stanislavski, it's much more about your ability to imagine yourself in other situations and to, to do the imagination homework, which is a lot of songwriting. If I write a song about someone, I expect to know them by the time I'm done with the song. I know what's in their closets. I know where they live and how they live and all of that stuff. They have a real a reality to me. If the acting gave me something that informs my songwriting, it would be that. It's just fuller. And what about the learning dance? Oh, well, I was just wretched at that. I, just, <laughs> I would never expose the American ballet to me. But I have the wrong body for dance, and I also have the wrong ear for it, because dancers hear music completely differently than musicians. But I get the sense in the book that something changed in you because you took the dance. You never became a great dancer. Absolutely. I didn't go into it thinking I would ever be a good dancer. I thought I would be pathetic. But it was the first time in my life I had done an art form that I consciously knew I would never be good at. So I had no expectation for myself, and that was really, really liberating. I get a lot of famous and semi-famous writers and performers who come to me on occasion because they can't write. And almost inevitably, it's that they can write. They just can't write for public consumption right now. It's easy to forget if you're in this business that you started it for the joy of it and that you continue to do it because of the joy and that everyone doesn't have to hear every song. Every song doesn't have to be great. Taking something like ballet, where I knew going in that I would be miserably horrible, meant that I could just enjoy it. So I did. I had a wonderful time. I would still have a wonderful time if I was still doing it and wasn't so lazy. I noticed a subtext running through the book, Janice, and 
was your ability to want to always keep learning and expanding, which I think a lot of people give up on at some point. Well, it's easy to lose that edge, Richard. I mean, I think it's hard to keep the edge. I should say that. You get older, you get tired, you have a mortgage, you have a family, you have other things on your mind besides your work. And it's it's too easy to let that drama creep into your life instead of staying in your work where it belongs. For me, I periodically go through, I hate this, and I'm. why am I doing it? This is just stupid of me. And then I go back to, this is what I do. I really wanted the book, and I would like it if my life could live up to my work. That would be a nice thing to go out on. I don't particularly care if I'm remembered or not, but I would, I would like my life to be congruent with my work. What about the fact that even though you might consider and those around you, I mean, this co- crops up toward the end of the book as you get older, the awareness that your work now after all these years probably, hopefully, is better or more mature than it was when you were younger. But because you're older, you can't get the play you got when you were younger. Well, I think you make your peace with that. You know, and for me, I don't know that it's that much better. Really? I know it's different. You know, I wrote Jesse at 20, 21. That's about as perfect a song to me as you can write. Of everything I've written, Jesse is the closest to perfect. And how many times do you get to do that in a lifetime? I had a really big realization when I went totally independent a few years ago that for the first time in my life, I didn't have to tour behind a record. I didn't have to plan my sets around the new record. I didn't have to plan my talk around the new record. I could look back at a body of work and go, you know what, I have Jesse, I have Stars, I have At 17, I have I have some really wonderful songs here. I don't have to concentrate on what's recent. I can concentrate on the ones that I like best. And that's just been huge for me. That's changed the whole character of how I approach a show. Now you you feel comfortable playing these older things. Yeah, I don't know that I ever felt uncomfortable with them. And I wouldn't want to say that I look on them like a, a nostalgia or a retrospective. But I feel like I, I've created this body of work. And how nice that in my 50s I can look at it as a body of work and not just as what can I do now to get back on the charts. At the same time, how do you keep a song like Jesse or At 17 or Society's Child when you played them thousands and thousands of times? How do you keep it fresh for yourself? That's my job. It goes back to Stella. The audience doesn't care what I feel about the song. They care about what I make them feel. So with that approach, um, it doesn't get stale. I don't really know why or how. I just know that that's my job and that's what I do. I guess part of it is that I'm really conscious that each night it's a new audience and people have sometimes saved up a long time and they've got babysitters and gas and all of that and it's, it's an expensive night out. And I'm really conscious that, as my partner said, you know, you live with you all the time. They only get that 90 minutes of you. There's a, a little bit in society's child fantasy, and there's a little bit about what it was like being a musician in the 60s and oh, 70s when yeah. everything was free and open and easy, and you could sit there with an audience and talk back and just hang out and people could come up. Mm. And it's changed now, right? I think it's changed to a point. It's changed just because, in part, there are so many more lunatics out there, in part because the shows are bigger. You know, when I was playing to play to 1,500 people, that was huge. That was a huge theater. And nowadays, 1,500 people is next to nothing. So that's all changed. From my point of view, my audiences are still <laughs> a little too interactive sometimes for my taste. And I stay after every show to meet people and to sign stuff and, and to just really say hello. So I get that experience of feedback every night. I guess it depends on the kind of life you want and the kind of artist you want to be publicly. Again, it's congruence to me. I I try to be congruent with my work. 
the work leads, and I sometimes sit on the back of that runaway horse holding on. Janice, Ian, um, a few years ago, you got involved in a controversy about downloading Internet songs. and yeah, There went my 10th Grammy nomination. My editor at Performing Songwriter, Lydia Hutchinson, asked me to write an article about the evils of downloading. And I had been online pretty early. I think my website went up in 94, originally, or 95. And I was in the forefront just by accident because I knew all of these techie people. And I started to research the article, the fully intending to prove that downloading was bad. And the more research I did, the more I realized that um, the RAA statistics were very skewed and that the truth wasn't coming out at all. And so I wrote an article called The Internet Debacle, where I talked about that me and my friend Michael Camp had gone to the various record companies and performing rights societies a year before and begged them to come online, begged them to put in um, in their contract some kind of reasonable online fees, and they all told us that uh, it was a fad, that it would go away. It started to make me crazy as I did the research, and I realized that downloading really wasn't hurting sales. It really wasn't. It still isn't. Statistically, it still isn't. Um, the week that they closed Napster down, sales overall dropped horrifically. And the more research I did, the more convinced I became that it was all a shell game. And it was really about something completely different. Like nowadays, where I think the last I heard, 75 to 80% of all digital content, CDs, DVDs, all of that, was fake. It's coming out of China and that whole area of the world. But we're not going to go after them. We're going to go after nine-year-olds. So I published the article, and it was very interesting, the reaction, because people in my industry were just furious, but most of them, like my friend Amanda, were furious, and they hadn't even read the article. All they'd heard was that I was anti-copyright, which was so far from the truth. And then I started getting into intellectual property arguments with people over the length of copyright, you know, where the United States finally went to life plus 50, and then Disney comes along and tries to extend the life of a trademark forever. And I'm going, well, you know, if Bach and Beethoven were still <laughs> copyrighted, if Shakespeare was still under copyright, they wouldn't be in the schools because the schools couldn't afford it. So you have to look at a point where public domain becomes very important. And then there's a balance between that and I've got to earn a living. And after the internet debacle, I went ahead and wrote another article called Fallout. I think they're both still on my website. Yeah, they are. And Fallout called for all the record companies to get together and put their money where their mouths were and win back the audience that they had lost and alienated and angered and really just deceived and form a huge site that would have everybody's music on it <coughs> available. And I said, wouldn't it be great if there was a website where you could download music and movies and uh, interviews with these artists and it was all reasonably priced? I think I proposed a quarter a download. And everybody <laughs> thought I was completely out of my mind. And then a year later, here comes iTunes and just proved my points over and over and over again. And I, I rarely felt so vindicated, but I did make some serious enemies in, in the RAA camp. And what are you going to do? Janice Ian, you also came out at a fairly early time for a performer. Now, I don't know, does it really matter even in Nashville if someone comes out? I think it would matter in country music. It certainly matters in gospel. There has yet to be one of the gospel people or one of the gospel folks on the down low who's come out. Country music still doesn't have a gay out person who's getting radio play. I think what it's going to take is like what Greg Luganis did. Um, it's going to take a couple of major stars coming out who have already got huge audiences. It's not going to be people who are startups. Are they closeted with uh, people like you, for instance? Some of them. Or they think they are. Yeah, and, and there are certain people, certainly in country music and in gospel, who, or in Christian, as they say it, 
Christian music who wouldn't be seen with me just for fear of contamination. But, you know, that's their right. I mean, one of the things that I worked hard on in the book and the reason that I agreed to change a couple of names was because unless somebody's actively working against gay rights, I'm not comfortable outing them. I don't think that I have any business doing that. I don't think you have the right to try and determine someone else's destiny. Certainly, I got outed in 75 or 6 by the Village Voice, and it was not a pleasant experience. I don't think it's fair, but then everybody's got their own road to hoe. You've begun writing science fiction. How do you compare <laughs> that? Well, I mean, you've been published. Uh, you have, have around I've six, seven nine, stories. nine stories, and they've all been published, much to my astonishment, and they're not great stories. Are <laughs> The hard thing about starting in another form for someone like me is you start in the fishbowl, although I guess I could have just written them and not let anybody see them. There would have been that alternative. Or a pseudonym. Yeah. My friend Mike Resnick really sat on me to do this to start writing prose. He really thought that I could write stories. He still does. We're due to write a novel next year. One of the things that immediately taught me was that a lot of what I had taken for talent as a songwriter was just experience, 40 years worth of it to draw on any time I sat down to write a song. Going into the short stories, I had nothing. I had no experience at all. I had just talent, and I, and I really understood that talent serves you well, but boy, craft, you need the craft. You plan to do... Uh any uh, writing groups? Like Clarion, you mean? I don't know. I don't know. Right now, next year, I'm, I'm going to, I think, co-write this, this novel with Mike, and I'm not sure what else I'm going to do. I'm backing off on touring. I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm beginning to be a real road rat. I did 200 shows one year, which was way too many. When was your most recent album? New material. Focus the New Black in 06. But see, that's part and parcel, I think, of the getting old and, and looking again at everything. You hit your 50s, and it's kind of the screw you years. You know, it's the, I don't really care what you think of me. I know what I think of me. I don't say that to have a chip on my shoulder or any arrogance. I just am reasonably comfortable with what I do and who I am. Once you hit this point, you look around, and if you're me, you go, I really don't want to keep repeating myself. I'd like to make a jazz record because I've always wanted to do a jazz album. But outside of that, I don't know how much more I'll tour or how much longer, and I don't know how much longer I'll be recording. They're not huge areas of interest for me right now. I'd much rather be at home working on a, a young adult novel that may or may not be any good. What do you listen to now? I listen so little. Vienna Tang, I've been listening to her. Jeffrey Foucault, I like him a lot. Sarah Benton's first album, Scream. I listen to a lot of Billie Holiday. I listen to a lot of chant, Gregorian chant, a lot of Japanese no theater music. I, I don't have much auditory closure. I, have, I find it really hard to block sound. So uh, most of the authors I know listen to music while they work, and I can't. Um, when I was working on the book, I wanted something in the background, and I actually emailed my publishers and record affiliates in Japan and asked them to send me traditional music because I knew that would be alien enough that I wouldn't keep trying to slot it into my life. Do you find it on subliminal levels affecting you then? Oh, yeah. Everything that goes in comes out. Yeah, garbage in, garbage out. If there's anything you have to watch for if you're a young writer, it's don't take in a lot of bad music. you be doing any more touring? Yeah, I'm touring next year. I'm just touring a lot, lot less. I'm not going out for six months at a time and three months at a time. I think those days are pretty much over for me. It sounds to me, Janice Ian, that, you know, you pulled... I guess what happens at a certain point is maybe if you're lucky or good, you pull it all together and your life can kind of 
move in really directions that you want it to move in. It seems that you've done that. I, I don't know that I've done it. I'm, I'm working toward it. I'm trying to work toward it. Uh, my uncle, who is in his 80s, sat me down for a serious talk earlier this year, and he said, you know, you're 57. You want off the road. You need to learn not to be on the road. You need to learn not to be on the hamster wheel. You're going to have to consciously stop yourself from saying yes to those things and consciously begin to slow down if you want this other life that you're talking about. And I, I've i slowly begun to realize, particularly staying at home for a year to write the autobiography, that I love being at home. I don't want to look up in five years and go, why didn't I spend more time with Pat? And I've, I've always paid lip service to that, but I think now it's really true. <laughs> I really don't want to be touring. <laughs> Not the way I've been touring anyway. You know, something like this is great. I mean, you're obviously, you're familiar with the book. You're familiar with my life. Um, you're not condescending. We're not having a lot of, uh, but by and large, when you're doing press, a lot of it is people who head them up, move them out. You know, and I understand that, but it gets wearing from my point of view. It gets wearing. One final question, Janice. Uh -oh. If you could, I, I know you really can't, but if you could sum up something to tell to the aspiring artist one or two things that they could do right now to make it a little bit better for them or more creative for them? Is there anything you better could say? Better or more creative or fiscally better? Or That's a big question. I would say to any aspiring artist that if you can do anything else, do that. Because this is the business of failure. It really is. Um, you fail many more times than you succeed. No matter how big you get, you're still going to fail more than you succeed. For every Michael Jackson's great year, Here's a Michael Jackson not-so-great year. So I would say that, and then I would say that if you can live with getting your nose rubbed in the dirt and cement skid marks all over it on a daily basis, the next thing I would say is trust your talent, trust your instincts. If you go with your instincts and you go with your talent, then at least you'll have done something you feel good about. And then the third thing I would say is save, save your energy for your work. You know, don't dissipate it in drinking or drugging or even screwing. I mean, all of those things. I'm not <laughs> advocating abstinence, but it's too easy to get diverted for artists. It's very easy to get diverted. And last, uh, just don't forget that it's the joy of it that's important. It's easy to lose sight of that. You've been listening to an interview with singer-songwriter Janice Ian, recorded on September 10, 2008, while she was on tour for her memoir, Society's Child. What she says will be her last solo studio album, the Light at the End of the Line was released in January 2022. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>